Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today's book is really important to me. During this whole project, I've been in conversation with my men friends, asking them what their fears are and what their hesitations are in relation to breaking down patriarchy. And I hope that listeners have felt through the whole project my intentions and my concern about men. I'm very, very invested in creating a world that works for all human beings, and that includes everybody. It includes in my personal life, my husband and my son and my brother and brothers-in-law and nephews and dad and father-in-law. It includes those men just as much as it does the girls and the women in my family. I want the whole human family to be free and to have the tools that we all need to flourish. So with that in mind, periodically I check in with the men in my life and just to find out how they're reacting to this educational project. And in response, I get lots of emails and I've had lots of conversations. And I want to start the episode today with an email that I got from one of my college friends, one of Eric's good friends too. We were all friends freshman year in college. And he wrote this in an email, quote, I hope you'll also consider all the negatives of being male. Higher crime rate, higher imprisonment, higher suicide rate, higher homicide rate, higher drug use rate, lower college attendance, lower high school graduation rate. And then he says, I don't know if those are related to patriarchy, but sometimes the word patriarchy implies that men have it easier in all the categories and that men also seem to be the winners. I heard some of these while listening to Jordan Peterson, whom I sometimes agree with. And then a smiley face, end quote. <laughs> I He probably added that sometimes agree with and the smiley face because he knows how I feel about Jordan Peterson's views on women. But this is a friend who's engaged with me on lots of difficult topics. And I thank you. Thank you. Thank you for asking all of these questions. These are super important questions to ask, super important conversation to me. Um, and we only got to address some of it in the episode on the gender knot by Alan Johnson. So I've been really, really excited to read and discuss today's book. It's called For the Love of Men, From Toxic to a More Mindful Masculinity by Liz Plank. And I'm also super excited to talk about this book with my dear friend and mom of three boys, Jenny DeGraff. Welcome, Jenny. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm really excited you're here too. This is going to be so great. Um, and like I said, I've really been anticipating this book because this keeps coming up. People keep saying, well, wait, you keep saying that patriarchy is not good for boys and men either. So what do you mean by that? So anyway, this book is going to, I thought this book was really, really interesting and super glad I read it. So, but before we dig in, let's learn a little bit about the author as we always do. So Jenny, can you tell us about Liz Plank? Sure, sure. Elizabeth Plank, uh, she was born in uh, March 19th, 1987, and she grew up in Montreal. She attended McGill University, majoring in women's studies and international development and working as a community counselor for people with developmental disabilities. She received the Sheila Feinstone Award, a prize given to an outstanding undergraduate student studying in the field of women's studies. Plank received a master's degree at the London School of Economics and began writing articles about gender and human rights for the Huffington Post. In wow. 2013, 
Plank began her media career in New York City, serving as a correspondent and co-creator of the weekly video series Flip the Script, which covered issues like feminism, homophobia, and racism. In 2016, she produced and hosted 2016-ish, an award-winning series about the presidential election, and gave a TEDx talk that inspired her first book, For the Love of Men, A New Vision for Mindful Masculinity, published in October 2019, which is, of course, the book we're discussing today. She sits on the board of Girl Up, a United Nations Foundation nonprofit organization that unites girls to change the world, and has spoken alongside Meghan Markle, Michelle Obama, and Priyanka Chopra at their annual summits. It's impressive. She's Mm -hmm. young still, too. So Mm -hmm. that's quite an impressive resume for her age. It's awesome. Okay. And then one more thing before we start. I just want to address the book's title. The book title is now in this iteration. It's um, For the Love of Men, From Toxic to a More Mindful Masculinity. And that's a phrase people use a lot, toxic masculinity. And so I want to just address it right off the bat. Just to be clear, toxic masculinity doesn't mean that all masculinity is toxic, right? It's describing a version of masculinity that is toxic, toxic to the men and boys that grow up marinating in it, right? Toxic masculinity hurts boys and men. And then as a secondary issue, the resulting behaviors that they sometimes exhibit hurt other people as well, because hurt people hurt people. That's a phrase Sophie taught me, actually. (laughs) But so Liz Plank's goal is to reclaim masculinity in a healthier way or to to redefine what masculinity can mean. But it's not because she thinks that men are toxic or masculinity is toxic. It's precisely the opposite. She thinks that men are wonderful. She loves men. That For me, that really came through in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, she devotes that whole chapter to her dad that she loves and respects. There's like a picture of her dad and Um, So she sees this certain version of masculinity harming boys and men, and so she wants that to stop. So I just wanted to be clear about that, just because toxic masculinity, I think, can be misunderstood to mean that, that, you know, men are toxic. So, um, okay, so we're going to trade off chapters, and I chose chapter two, and so that's where we'll start. Chapter two is titled, Manhood is Never Fully Earned and needs to be renewed over and over again. So Plank says that she became obsessed with a study that found that when male subjects were in the presence of women, they ate 93% more pizza (laughs) (laughs) than when they weren't with women. I thought that was so funny. And And that's a lot more. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot more. Oh, it's so funny. But um, I loved that she included that. And I mean, I should say, Jenny, I don't know about you, but I felt like the whole tone of the book was very, like, it's very, there's tons of data and like she publishes legitimate studies and, but the tone is very casual and conversational and she has a great sense of humor. So absolutely. And a lot of, a lot of great anecdotes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Which I appreciate too. So this was real data though, that they had this, you know, men ate almost double the amount of pizza. So that just um, is a great way to start to establish this fact. We just talked about it on the episode on Bad Feminist with Setare and how gender is a performance. And so just like women experience pressure to perform their gender in certain ways, so do men. And so, yeah, the pizza example is super funny, but they're 
are much more serious ones too. She cites this study. um, She talks about a study at the University of South Florida that made one group of men braid hair while a control group braided rope. And then I'll quote, quote, the group that was given the traumatizing task of braiding human hair were more likely to want to hit a punching bag over making a puzzle and were likely to punch the bag harder. And then the researchers said, the the most liberal, non-homophobic men in our studies were just as uncomfortable braiding hair as those who hold very traditional beliefs about gender roles. Men's anxiety about violating the the male gender role is almost like a classically conditioned response. People have no control over it. That's the end of the quote from the researcher. So the authors explained that being aggressive is a manhood-restoring tactic and that women were not the main punishers of gender role violations. End quote. Okay, so who are the main punishers of gender role violations for men? It's other men, right? Because there's the ridicule of men if they do anything like quote-unquote girly, because as we've mentioned before, the worst thing a man can be, especially in a very, in kind of like a malignantly patriarchal society, the worst thing a man can be is to be perceived as feminine. So, okay, here's another quote from... This chapter, quote, when men are told they score lower on masculinity tests, whether or not it's true, they are more willing to act aggressively, harass women and belittle other men. So and that leads actually to the next chapter. And actually, I claimed the next chapter, too. So I'm talking a lot, but then it will be your turn. <laughs> <Jenny. Okay. laughs> Sorry. But the next chapter that that I wanted to um, highlight is chapter five, and that's called Men are slaves to their bodies and their nether regions. Okay, let's dive into this. Um, these studies on testosterone because I did think they were—they kind of blew my mind. Is so different from anything I'd learned before. So, so to put it simply, the way men are affected by testosterone depends on social perceptions and norms that we create. Its effect is variable and heavily determined by our social environment. Testosterone encourages men to seek status but the way one's ranking is defined is entirely up to us and the social norms we agree upon. And that was Plank again. Okay, Jenny, I'm done right. with chapter five, so okay. take it away. So I, um, I focused on chapter seven, which is called The Great Suppression. So Plank, she writes about the, the crisis of depression and mental illness in men. And here's a quote. She says, I call this crisis the Great Suppression. Men grew up disowning their emotions. It's a kind of emotional estrangement so pernicious and so embedded in the way we raise them, it's almost invisible until it's too late. No wonder men weren't able to manage their feelings. As boys, they had been taught they didn't have any. Emotional expression and management was a crucial skill that simply hadn't been properly instilled in men. In fact, boys who show it get reprimanded. Boys don't cry. Be strong. Don't let him know it hurts you. So um, this, this made me, this made me really sad, of course. And that line about how it's invisible until it's too late um, you know, hurt, hurt my heart. Um, I, I do feel like there's progress here that this style of parenting of, you know, don't cry, be strong 
that's going away, I feel like, mm-hmm. um, from, yeah, totally. from what I see. Um, but it still is prevalent in, in many parts of society. So, so some of her claims, like she talks about, oh, men can't ask for directions um, and, and the boys don't cry thing. You know, some would say those are just cliches. Like that's mm-hmm. obsolete. But young men are still conforming to masculine norms because of external pressure. I think that's undeniable. And when men do suppress their emotions, it can have really devastating and destructive results from depression, but also onto, you know, violent aggression. Mm -hmm. So Plank, she writes about how isolation and the lack of attention to mental health um, can make them, and, and the quote here is, make them more vulnerable to predators who capitalize on that poor emotional integration to recruit them for violence. And so she's talking here about um, about ISIS, about the Proud Boys, about any of these kind of extremist groups or terrorists. But in, in thinking specifically about, you know, our own country, and mo- most recently, we've heard a lot about the Proud Boys. Um, mm-hmm. The idea is that they're that that men have been lauded they've been held up as protectors of their communities and and what the proud boys say when they're recruiting people is hey you know violence can be justified when it's for the common good right so they've grown up thinking okay white men are superior and then there's this changing society and they start to think oh wait a second we're losing some of our power because of this you know what they see as a threat of increased power by other non-white or, you know, non-male groups of people. And so they are led to believe that that violence as well as racism and, hey, misogyny um, are all acceptable responses because they are protecting their community. Mm-hmm. And that's how the Proud Boys kind of rope them in. But Plank writes that you know, instead of looking at these men as all bad, maybe we look at them as vulnerable, right? And so so looking at this kind of emotional, you know, kind of inability to express themselves or stand up for themselves might be a starting point to prevent further extremism. She says, of course, extremism, extremism is a very difficult problem to uh, battle, but that part of it could be helped by this kind of emotional uh, engagement. Hmm. Um, so moving on to the other part of this chapter, uh, this seems to be a much lighter note, <laughs> but mm-hmm. she, she talks about chivalry. So um, here's a quote for, about chivalry. Uh, the moral panic about chivalry being dead wasn't about women being too empowered. It was about men feeling like they were giving up on an important part of their identity. If we let go of men's obligation to open doors and pay the checks, perhaps we could have a more interesting conversation about coming up with other ways for men to be men and show respect to women. So she starts by talking about, you know, there are a lot of people, a lot of men uh, who really resist a kind of anti-chivalry movement because mm-hmm. they, um, they, they, like she says, it's a panic. Like 
don't take that away from me. I I am chivalrous. <laughs> this is what I do. Mm-hmm. Can I share one thing that that I remember from this chapter? And to go along with what you're saying, one of the saddest parts for me was reading Plank's interview with how do you pronounce her name? Tommy Laren, I think. Yeah, I've never I'm I've read sure. her name, but I've never listened to her. But <laughs> I've read things that she said. Um, Tommy or Tommy Laren. Um, so anyway, Plank was doing an interview with Tommy Laren and her friend, John, they were having lunch together and they were both, so Laren and John were kind of proclaiming the virtues of a patriarchal society and like really holding to those very rigid gender roles where the man is the leader and makes all the money and takes care of his wife. And so Plank says, quote, I asked him what would happen if he lost his job or got injured, or if he had to become a stay-at-home dad. For the first time in our conversation, he went a bit quiet. The way I was raised, no. I could never be a stay-at-home father. I'd have to go out and work. I can't fathom the idea of a woman supporting me. It's just, I want to take care of her. That's how it should be. He continued that he couldn't bear the thought of not bringing anything to the table. It made me sad to think that John didn't think he could bring something valuable to the table as a man in a relationship unless it was money. And that's the end of the quote. And can I add here that she yeah. also talks in this section about how Tommy or whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> how, <laughs> how Tommy was able to go back and forth between these yes. kind of typical yes. roles. She could be the um, the powerful aggressive woman and and make lots of money she was allowed to go back and forth she was allowed yes. to be powerful and aggressive but then she still thought that he needs to do that and take care of the wife yes exactly it really is keeping those men in a box it's not good for them it is it's so it's so sad and it actually I'll, I'll come back to that in just a second because I'm about to start talking about the next chapter about parenthood. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So chapter nine in the book is is called Waffles Are His Love Language. As you mentioned <laughs> at the beginning, she she writes a lot about her her father in this chapter and and he waffles were his love language. So <laughs> um, so uh, I'm going to start with a quote from from that chapter. All this time, we focused on the changing role of women inside the workplace and inside the home, not realizing that this would also shift men's. We updated what it means to be a woman, but we didn't update what it meant to be a man. If young men aren't presented with a viable substitute for that model of the man as the provider, they're stuck idealizing the only model they have. Men are secretly wondering if she's the provider, what does that make me? Mm-hmm. So women are increasingly taken more seriously now as members of the workforce. Women are, um, you know, wearing pants and <laughs> working mm-hmm. and being, you know, being breadwinners uh, for their family. But What's missing from all of this over the years, and I and I think as a science teacher, you know, all this push like women in STEM, women in STEM, like you know, you can do anything, and trying to push women into into more of these STEM careers, but but there hasn't been that shift for the for the boys and for the men, and so they um, 
they are seeing, okay, here's, here are these women in my life, or here's my wife working, being a provider. Wait a second. That's what I was supposed to do. So now what do I do? Right. And so, Mm -hmm. um, and then, and then when you think of it, like you were just saying with men as, as stay at home fathers, they're, they're still not taken seriously as caretakers. And, and it is, and it is really sad. The example that you just gave of, of some of your friends, they should be praised for being such wonderful fathers and raising such wonderful children. I mean, women would be. Right. And it's not fair that, mm-hmm. that they aren't or that they, that they, and then not only that, not only are they not praised, but they're depressed because mm-hmm. they, they're having identity issues. It's, it's, it's devastating. Um, so this chapter on parenthood also goes into, you know, what I see as as another, you know, huge important issue uh, about um, about black and brown fathers and black and brown boys. So uh, I'll start with a quote: "Masculinity norms have a hand in both making it hard for men to be fathers." and also making it hard for men to have fathers. One of the most profound ways it shows up is in the mass incarceration and the criminalization of black and brown fathers. So there's this cycle of fatherlessness, um, and, and and it's a deliberate system. So our criminal justice system disproportionately punishes men of color. That is just a fact. Um, and it, and of course, this disrupts families. Uh, Plank brings up the um, the kind of hyper masculinity that exists in prisons, and it's explained by um, this woman named Corinne Dachi. She's a psychology professor, and she um, wrote a research article about incarceration. Uh, this is from the Journal of Men's Studies, and here's a quote from that article. Performances of hypermasculinity are strategies for coping with imprisonment, deprivation, and loss of social status that conflict with relationship satisfaction and engagement in family roles. In turn, low engagement in family roles and relationships may result in decreased family support and contact, as well as reduced opportunities for accomplishing non-dominant forms of masculinities. So it's just this cycle that that you see um and how to how to break out of that, you know. Okay. The next chapter that we wanted to talk about is chapter 11, which is titled If Patriarchy is so great, why is it making you die? So, Plank talks about going to Iceland to research gender and says Um, Everybody talks about how great Iceland is for women, but it's underreported how great it is for men too. So in Iceland, men enjoy the longest life expectancy in Europe, the smallest gender gap in life expectancy. So that means men live almost as long as women, which is kind of unheard of Mm -hmm. anywhere. They're less likely to get divorced, which indicates greater marital happiness. They have lower rates of depression, lower rates of violent death. Mm-hmm. Plank says, quote, it's hilarious that gender equality helps men live longer because one of the most frequent men's rights activists argument to derail a feminist argument is to point to the fact that men die sooner than women and that because of this, the focus on women is unwarranted. 
Feminism is the antidote to shorter male life expectancy, not the cause of it. Saying feminism makes men die earlier is like saying firefighters cause fire or that pain relievers cause headaches. Men's rights activists fear that any examination of idealized masculinity is an attack on men when scrutinizing it might be one of the most effective ways to help them. So that kind of sums it up. Mm-hmm. Yes. And 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 this does kind of, this hopeful discussion kind of brings me to the the concluding chapter, which is called The Case for Mindful Masculinity. So you brought up that term mindful masculinity at the, at the beginning as an alternative to toxic masculinity. Um, so I'm going to start with a quote. The gender wars myth has warped the conversation and led us to believe women's and men's problems are not connected and that spending time or resources on one doesn't help the other, when in reality, it's challenging the big overarching system that harms all genders that allows us all to thrive. So, okay. So this, of course, yes, we're, we're having this discussion helps everybody. We're, we're not just trying to help the women. You're not just trying to help the women with this mm-hmm. project and talking about masculinity isn't just about tra- uh, trying to help the men. But this made me think a lot about this separate, I- separate discussion about gender identity, right? So mm-hmm. there's, it, it may, it's hard to talk about, you know, men and women and helping men and women when I keep thinking about, well, there, there are more and more non-binary people, um, mm-hmm. and I feel like a little bit uncomfortable just talking about men and women when mm-hmm. that's not the whole picture, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, that is so important, Jenny. And and to Plank's yeah. credit, she does state in the introduction of the book that she does not believe that gender and sex are binary. She says, quote, we must first name the system if we are to break free from it. In this book, I am not advocating or supporting a gender binary, but am rather interested in assessing the damage that occurs in the process of raising men and boys in a society that imposes it. Um, so now, okay, back to her, her recommendations for the future. Quote, healthy emotional intelligence doesn't mean a more expansive expression of emotions. It means a smarter expression of emotions. It means we let boys have feelings so that those feelings don't end up governing them. So I thought that was real a really great way of looking at it. So this this concept of mindful masculinity that she that she brings up, um, the idea is look for for men to look inward and to look at all the whole list of of these masculine expectations what which of the behaviors serve you and which ones don't right like what what makes you a good man and not that garbage about what makes you a real man um mm-hmm. uh to to kind of allow men to understand their emotions and develop tools to deal with them so not about controlling the world around you um, the a lot of this came from a, a discussion that she's had or many discussions that she's had with Michael Kimmel, who's a fairly famous sociologist who specializes in gender studies. 
He talked about an exercise that he does with men all over the world. He goes around and gives talks and um, he asks men to describe a good man and he asks men to describe a real man. So when he asks them to describe a good man, they say things like um, integrity, being responsible, being a good provider, a protector, doing the right thing, putting others first caring, standing up for the little guy, like mostly all Mm. really wonderful (laughs) characteristics. Mm -hmm. And then when Mm -hmm. he asks them to describe a real man, here's what they say. They say, never cry, be strong, don't show your feelings, play through pain, suck it up, win at all costs, be aggressive, get rich, get laid. That's that's Mm. being a real man. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we look at we look at both of those lists and they are all descriptors for masculinity, right? It's just that some mm-hmm. are really good and beneficial and some are super problematic. So the idea with mindful masculinity is hey, let's reframe masculinity and just try to include the good ones or not even like what is good, but but having an honest discussion about, you know, hey, why can't we get rid of the ones that just don't make sense or that don't mm-hmm. serve a useful purpose and and reframe masculinity as, as something positive and helpful? Mm. Yeah, that's really neat. Yep. Well, that brings us to the end of the chapters that we chose. So Jenny, thank you for being here today. I mean, it was just so fun to have this conversation. I think you're amazing. And thank oh, you for thank joining you us. Thank you for having me. This was such a, a, a great project for me to get to participate in. I'm, I'm truly, truly honored. Thank you. Thank you.